and you've tuned in to another episode of the Wellness Cast, where science and ancient wisdom collaborate, 3ABR 87.6 FM, and we're your hosts, Katerina and Brett Morrison. Uh, now, we've got Kath, uh, Dr. Catherine Fines, uh, integrative medical practitioner on tonight with 40 years of uh, medical experience and author of The Wounding Healthcare. She joins us tonight on the Wellness Couch. Catherine Fyans on the line with us. Catherine, how are you going? 40 years of being a doctor, so you've seen it all. Uh, well, I've seen a lot, certainly over that time. And, um, you know, particularly it's given me a long time to observe human nature, health, but also human nature, because I, I, uh, my understanding is that uh, health is not separate from life and mind's not separate from body. And I, I work from that understanding. So it's given me a long time. Yeah, you've written a book, um, The Wounding of yep. Healthcare from Fragmentation to Integration. So um, you've got a particular interest in mind-body healthcare. Absolutely. Yeah, so but basically the book started because um, it, it's quite a tricky thing to explain mind-body medicine. It's a term that's thrown around but there's um, not a collective understanding of what it actually means. So I started jotting down some notes to really try and explain things to, to patients, and it ended up being a book, yeah. uh, <laughs> as it happens. Um, and, you know, my, my thinking regarding mind-body medicine is not really accepted into um, mainstream medicine, and it's not yet, it hasn't yet infiltrated into our collective consciousness. So, so um, my understandings might be a little different to, to mainstream. Great. So um, in terms of um, if, if we go to the viruses, I mean, Zach Bush has brought up a lot of um, information that viruses are 50% of genetic material information that emerges from bacteria. The genetic, infor um, genetic information from bacteria is basically like an upgrade to our body. Um, yeah. And concerning the, the um, I guess, the current situation that we've got, um, I see it as an opportunity for humans to actually upgrade as almost as a superhuman. We've, we've, um, we've lived this long for thousands of years because due to those uh, virus replications or, or upgrades that we've actually received. And in fact, um, I read somewhere too that the placenta um, can do its biological function due to those upgrades. Um, from the viral replications, if, if we didn't get that upgrade, we wouldn't be able to birth a human being. Yes, I'm um, maybe a, an unusual um, doctor in that I trust nature. I completely trust nature. I think nature has it worked out. But we have clearly manipulated it, you know, over the last few hundred years. But I think nature doesn't get it wrong when you really look into it. So we collectively think that a virus, a bacteria, a microbe is the enemy to be fought. 
Okay, that's our thinking. And we're certainly seeing that unfold right now. But I agree with you in that these different epidemics that we've had throughout the ages, and we've been here for a long, long time, are to upgrade our collective consciousness in a way. So everything in nature, I believe, serves a purpose. And illness is not always the enemy. It's, it's sometimes a teacher. So this, this idea that we fight everything and we fight it by artificial means, um, I believe is a misconception. Now, I'm not saying we throw out the baby with the bathwater. Obviously, if someone's unwell, we, we, we treat them in reasonable means. Of course we do. But there's another way of looking at it, as, you, you've, um, as you've shared. And I think with what's unfolding now, we're, we're tending to look at it in a very unilateral, very fear-based way. And thus, we're focusing very much on barrier methods to the virus, such as, you know, masks and lockdowns and uh, jails and perspex. And that, that's fine. That's, that's fine to a point. But it's only one part of the story. And I think if we just narrow our focus to how can we block the virus out, then I think that's a limited perspective. Yeah, let's have a look at um, a bit of the science behind, because I, I know there'll be people going, well, where's the science behind this? And I just want to talk about the science, just, just a little bit, just to um, get people thinking. So we have those incredible regulatory functions in the body, um, which are basically highly skilled communication system via the cells that determine what uh, DNA or RNA is allowed to enter into that cell, that particular cell that um, is allowed to live long enough or interact with the system to allow a protein to whether or not the gene's going to be upgraded or not. Um, so that's what gives us our genomic or genomic updates, basically, that create adaptations for us humans. Now, if there's a balance, the viral replication doesn't repeat itself. But, um, for example, if you get influenza, you take in the virus, you re reproduce it for a short period of time, um, through the uptake of tissues that require the update to the genetic information, and then we reach a balanced state or we reach basically health. Now, that whole genomic code is updated within you. And uh, we basically saw that with MERS and SARS. It only took, uh, I think, two seasons of, um, of MERS and SARS to actually get the upgrade within the human's body. And then it basically disappeared. So um, once we've reached that balanced state and the whole genomic code is updated within you, um, that DNA holds some of that memory. Okay, so it's constantly, we're finding out now, as you know, that DNA is constantly updating. Isn't that complexity of genomic updates what is making us today? Do you know what I mean? So that connection with nature where um, that virus gives us the opportunity to update our genomic sequence um, to make us who we are today. Um, and that's been inserted to us by viruses since we've, we've begun. It's, it's what makes us adaptable to our actual environment. So why are we starting to, to have this narrative where we're becoming scared of the germs that are outside of us? Exactly. And when you look at us, we're not separate from nature or we're not meant to be separate from nature, though it um, seems that many are trying that we uh, should be. And, you know, most people are aware of the microbiome. Um, you know, we have about 10 times the amount of microbes in our body 
compared to our number of cells. And, and that's a symbiotic win-win relationship that we would have always had. And, you know, people have been on the planet, we've been here for millennia, and we have survived by interacting with microbes in, in the environment. And as I said, all that you said um, makes perfect sense. There is a function for that. Now, we know that the gut microbiome is essential for a whole host of things, um, including our immune system, I might add. It's, it's a very big factor in having a health immune system, but it also is good for the integrity of the lining of the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, it helps us make um, uh, vitamins and minerals, et cetera, et cetera. We actually wouldn't live without it. No. So I, I think to say that microbes are the enemy is a unilateral um, argument, and we do need to look at the, the other side of it. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and what is concerning me, particularly, and, and many um, practitioners and uh, doctors at this time, is that uh, there's been no information that's been disseminated by organisations or a concern on how we can remain in balance with this particular virus. So it's always um, ex uh, attacking or killing the external threat rather than remaining in balance with um, something that has been very natural to us throughout our existence. Yes, I mean, I just want to make um, one point, or I'll make a couple of points. Um, and I should have said this in the beginning, Kat, I'm not representing the general medical world, in my views. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious diseases um, expert. And I'm not an expert on, on COVID. And I do certainly suggest that people get their health advice from their own healthcare practitioners. Um, so just, just for the start, could you repeat what you said? Sorry, your, your question. Uh, so basically this time around, there's been no information that's been disseminated and that, that's a concern um, yep. for lots of it, us it, um, it, by organisations or showing concern that um, how can we remain in balance with, with this virus? Because, I mean, are we embracing or, um, you know, are we losing that connection that we have to nature that we have for thousands of years? That this is, is well, basically an update of our genome. Well, well, we are. I mean, I live in Melbourne and here we are. So, you know, my, um, my stress reliever was a walk in nature. And uh, I can't go there now because it's more than five kilometres away. We're confined to indoors. We're meant to wear a mask. And... When we do walk in nature without a mask, we're breathing in these beautiful microbes from the soil all the time. We're meant to be having that interaction and we're blocking that, that, that out at present. The thing is, as I said, you know, we're presented with a very unilateral approach, which is block the virus out. And I, th I think that's a misconception anyway, because it's not looking at our individual susceptibility to getting a virus. People think it's a linear arrangement in that, you come in contact with the virus, you get the illness. And I don't see it that way at all. No. If we get an illness, we have a certain level of susceptibility, body, mind, and, and spirit, dare I say, that might make us susceptible. It's not just a linear, you're in contact with it, you get the illness. And this is why there's such a emphasis on these barrier methods, because that narrative has been well and truly put out there that we just block the virus out. Yeah, yeah. I'll get a virus if I have a level of susceptibility, and that's usually a level of stress. If I have had um, certain viruses or infections in the past, 
I have a certain level and I have a certain type of stress that makes me vulnerable. But there are simple things that people can do to enhance our immune systems and to calm our systems. And this has been going on for a long, long time now. I mean, this is months. It's not just a few weeks. Why are we not hearing that there are some simple, natural things that can actually calm our systems and enhance our immune system? Uh, why is the nightly news not saying this is what you can do? Why are we not calming? The other point there is when we're in a heightened state of fear, and we all have different susceptibilities or propensities to that, we know that that impairs our immune system. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. So there's so, 18,000 you know, different chemicals that come up in reaction to a short-term um, stress adaptation. It's absolutely amazing. And it changes not only your behaviour, but the way your brain thinks and your biological well, totally. system, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're in that sympathetic nervous system dominance, let's say, and a lot of people have been for a long, long time. Yeah. It's been extended. You know, we, well, it, well, exactly. You know, it's well documented that that impairs our immune system. It's actually an energy-consuming catabolic state. We're not designed to be in that state long-term. We're designed to be in that state short-term. So let's say we're in survival mode. Okay. That is designed for a short-term threat. So if we're being chased by a tiger, if we're crossing the road and a car's careering around the corner, we want that to work well so that we survive, basically. We cope with the challenge by either usually um, fight or flight, sometimes freeze. That's a short-term method. And Dr. Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton talk a lot about this, yeah. as, as you probably know, Kat. So great in the short term. We really want that to work. But when that's sustained for months on end, that's concerning because there's this heightened level of fear. So what happens is our sympathetic nervous system is pumping out and our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the other branch of the autonomic nervous system. And that's what we need for rest, repair, recovery, and good maintenance of organ function, homeostasis. So when the sympathetic nervous system driving us into fight or flight is elevated and our parasympathetic nervous system is relatively underfunctioning, that's a very unbalanced state. And a lot of the things that we would normally do to enhance our parasympathetic nervous system, <clears throat> like meeting with friends, relaxing, you know, ha having a meal with friends, meeting family, um, you know, going for lovely walks in nature, going to the movies, um, going to shows, et cetera, et cetera, going to, you know, a sporting game. Um, we can't do any of that right now. Now, so I, I wonder, yes. What's the implications of that? Like we talked previously um, that those type of activities cause you bonding yes. through um, a hormone called oxytocin. Yep, absolutely. So oxytocin is a hormone produced by the hypothalamus and, and um, released from the posterior pituitary in the brain and uh, part of the limbic system, our emotional brain. And, and it has many functions. We know it as the love hormone. And it's uh, certainly produced when there's nurturing and close human contact. But it's... Um, <laughs> Lots of hugs. Exactly, exactly. But its functions actually extend beyond that. It's to do with um, uh, getting rid of old neuropathways and laying down new neuropathways. So it's not just about that. But it's also, and this is well-documented, being well-researched, um, it's anti-inflammatory. Yeah. And yeah. we know that inflammation or chronic inflammation is associated with pretty much any chronic 
illness, mm-hmm. uh, disease such as uh, cancer, heart disease, uh, you know, neurological um, aberrations like Alzheimer's, etc. So that's well established. And autoimmune, yeah, autoimmune. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a whole list. So inflammation, chronic inflammation, is associated with chronic diseases, clearly. So oxytocin is designed to be anti-inflammatory. It also enhances our immune system. So the idea is, to put it in social terms, when, particularly when we're stressed, if we have that close human contact when we're stressed, we produce oxytocin, and that helps to mitigate a lot of the adverse physiological and um, psychological effects of stress. Most definitely. Now, people who live alone, basically, we cannot see family. We cannot see friends. In Melbourne, I'm talking about. We cannot go out and see a face that's unmasked. So we're not seeing those nuances in people's facial expressions. And all of these things have an effect on our oxytocin level. So it's unnatural and it's unhealthy that we can't have that here. We're societal beings. We are meant to be with people. Binging on Netflix and just seeing faces on screens, it's not going to, it's not going to um, cut it, basically. So these measures to separate us, under the guise of you won't get the virus, you know, to be quite honest, I think they're anti-life, not pro-life. Yeah, and, and like I said previously, like we're not allowing our bodies to handle and update um, the, geno- uh, the genome rather than, you know, um, we're looking at it from the virus um, can be killed and it's been uh, demonised basically, you know, with, with the germ theory. So are we entering a dangerous period um, and collaboration of ignorance with nature, basically? Well, the short answer is yes, most definitely. As I said, you know, getting back to what I was saying before, this idea of we block out the virus, we make it the enemy. We are surrounded and full of viruses and a variety of microbes all the time. We can't sterilise the whole world. And this is a misconception that people think, oh, masks, gloves, means safety. I don't see that that at all. So the idea of sterilising everything is a misconception. Before the lockdown, I went to the, the local beach for a walk. And um, interesting that we can't sit on the beach for 10 minutes to get a good dose of vitamin D, but that's another argument. But, yeah. And I saw these council workers in their orange, you know, high-vis sort of jackets walking around with big bottles of disinfectant. Oh, no. And, um, <laughs> Not glycophate. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. And this is outside. It was a rainy day, you know, on and off. And they were spraying disinfectant on all these outside structures at the beach. And they were extending that into the surrounding streets. And I, my jaw dropped. I thought, no, this can't be true. <laughs> this can't be true. And I actually thought, no, there must be something else going on. And I asked them, what, what are you doing? They said, oh, we're, we're disinfecting everything. And you know what? What amazed me mostly, Kat, about that was that no one else seemed to notice or care. Oh. I'm thinking, well, is this bizarre or am I totally misinterpreting what's going on here? So, you know, this idea that we, you know, nature is scary and we sterilise the whole world um, is not health producing. 
No. And I think, I think what has happened, Kat, is a lot of people have actually become um, scared of the air. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I've walked out in nature and I've seen people way in the distance, you know, and not surrounded by people with a mask on. And it's why, why you know, and I think they really have become scared of the air, that if they breathe air, it's now the enemy, they could get infected. But the reality is we've always had infections. We always will. And as you said, it's upgrading. There, there, there is a purpose. You know, these things are not the enemy. They are working with us. Well, it's funny because through the research I've done that uh, this new virus, I can't mention the name, but um, it has a new yeah. RNA strand. And I know through the professors I've talked to um, that have expertise in the virology, they said there's a new variant of protein. So there's a C and G strand um, that is allowing a resistance to occur. Like 60% of people exposed to the virus don't actually portray symptoms or are asymptomatic. Um, no. And 80 to 90% of people exposed to it have no symptoms. And this is why they've had to have a large foray of testing, haven't they, to actually try to find this virus. Um, and so it's, majority yes. of people have had no symptoms or they've had mild symptoms, which means we're at, 0.01% or 0.3% um, basically of a bad flu season. But um, that shows very much in line with what influenza is capable of doing. I know I'm, I'm really sorry for the people who have um, had very bad symptoms and even have passed away, but um, we're at 0.1% or 0.3%. Does that mean that we should close down society? Um, we've had very bad flu seasons previously. Yes, yeah, and look, I agree. And this is not to be disrespectful of anyone who's unwell and certainly not anyone who, who has died, not, not at all. We need to acknowledge that and acknowledge it with compassion. However, when you look at last year's uh, flu numbers, okay, uh, approximately 900 deaths. This happens, you know, very regularly. People will die of, well, they'll die with infections or of infections. So, let, let, let's look at the, the, the relative. And the latest figures on the COVID was, and I'm not disrespecting what's going on, but 221. I think this was actually on the, the 2nd of August. You might have more updated figures, Kat. But let, let's say two days ago, 221 total deaths in Australia over six months. That's 25 million people. I've got now, one... 36 lives lost in Victoria, Victoria thing. as of yesterday Victoria. and four yeah, and, and, yeah, new cases absolutely. and 6,489 active cases. And I'm not sure what active cases means. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and the total that's been tested so far to date as of yesterday was 1,676,953. Yes, exactly. So, yes, do we lock down a whole economy, basically take most of our freedoms away, as we're experiencing in Melbourne, um, separate people from loved ones for that? I think it's totally out of proportion to what actually the reality is. And why are we not hearing about the people who recover well or are not affected? Now, when the lockdown eased, in, in Melbourne at least, suddenly there seemed to be this fervent push for testing of the mass population. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've never, in 40 years, I've never come across that, ever. Why don't we do that during the flu? We know the flu can be deadly. 
So this mass test, and I thought, why are they doing that? That's not making any sense to me. Why are they doing it? Now, and is, I it, thought, well, is it true that um, the PCR test, which they actually utilised um, for yeah. detecting the virus, mm. uh, is that true that the maker or the inventor actually said that it wasn't for RNA viruses? So you can't distinguish whether it's an infection between a coronavirus or between Ebola or before between influenza so those people can test positive but you don't really actually know what they have correct this as far as those no no i don't i'm not an expert in this field so i'd love to hear from someone who is my understanding is no test is 100 percent reliable and a pcr test was not designed to test viruses it's testing genetic materials not testing for a virus and mm. the general public don't know that and is there cross-reactivity with other um, viruses, genetic yeah. material, other viruses such as um, coronaviruses that are commonly circulating throughout our community uh, anyway? And because of the level of amplification, is it finding levels of this material that most of us have in our bodies anyway? Well, I'll, I'll just pose that question. The thing is, the general public generally um, think that a test is 100% reliable, and yeah. that is not yeah. the fact. So are some of these results people with other viruses that are showing up as a positive PCR test? And all the authorities are saying they can't say that this is a 100% reliable test. Um, but like we even said, that test the, every year, yeah. yeah, this is the Australian Government Department of Health. Um, the extent to which a positive PCR result correlates with the infectious state of an individual is still being determined. A concern also was that because there's been such a massive amount of testing around the world, that, um, you know, they might have been fast-tracking these, these tests. So I think it's fair to pose a question, how reliable are these tests? Because if we're shutting down a whole economy yeah. and, you know, basically massively diminishing our quality of lives based on this test... But there's I other sectors that have been affected. I mean, I looked at the suicide rates um, in Australia and it's increased 200,000%. Um, so we've had yeah. like over, you know, a 1,000 uh, suicides um, just during this lockdown period. Yeah, and, and they're, they're the forgotten individuals because the mainstream news is not talking about suicides or not that I don't watch much of it so someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not hearing that that there is another side to this story. You know, the adverse outcomes from lockdown is very, very, very significant in the short term, but it will be much more so in the long term. And, you know, to have a balanced argument, we need to see both sides of the story. It's not just protection from the virus. Now, the thing is, you know, the, these numbers are not creating um, fear and panic because you can't catch suicide. The fact that there's... I think 8,000 lung cancer deaths per annum in Australia. People, unless they're directly involved, of course, they, it doesn't put people into a panic because they feel they can control that and you can't catch lung cancer. And I just pose a question, why, why are we, if we're so concerned about health, if the government's so concerned about health, why are cigarettes still being sold? I mean, you know, there, there's some inconsistencies and in, in hypocrisies here that just don't make sense to me. The thing about um, the other side of things, the suicides, the economic collapse, the increased domestic violence, markedly diminished quality of life, and it's so politically incorrect to even mention that. 
when people are in that fear state and they're hearing constantly how bad this is, not the people who largely recover and the actual very small numbers, but they've, they're, they've, their survival fears are well and truly triggered. Let's, um, while, while you uh, mentioned that, yeah. our survival rates yeah. or, or um, like you said, a 98 to 99% recovery rates that yeah. we have with this um, current virus. Yes. Well, why doesn't the mainstream news tell us that? nightly, daily, just pump out those figures. Why, why are we not hearing that to soothe yeah. us, mm. to, to calm us? They're running because with a no, narrative, yeah. Yeah, because no matter what's going on, no matter how bad or not this is, why not try and calm us? Why do we have to be in a pitch state of fear? Because we know what happens with the, the brain when we're in fear, when we're in oh, that survival. Well, my next question, what happens to us okay. when we're in that state well, of accelerated okay. fear for, for a prolonged state of time? Yeah, so as I said, that, that kind of um, heightened fear is, serves a great function for our immediate survival. Fight, flight, freeze, to help us survive an imminent challenge, okay? Not, not for long term. So what happens, and, and uh, Joe Dispenza talks a, a lot about this, is that when we're immediately faced with fear, we get a very, very narrow focus. We focus on ourselves. We focus on, on the, the threat and we don't have a lot of room for lateral thinking when we're in that state. It's like, it's actually a very narcissistic state. Now, I'm not saying they're narcissistic people, not at all. And it's meant to be. If you're running from a tiger, you want to be thinking about yourself and your immediate survival at the expense of everything else. Oh, that's definitely. That's an adaptive thing. That's fine. But when that goes on and on for months, people are so focused on the threat and they're not laterally thinking, the prefrontal cortex, which is our executive function, functioning, doesn't get a look in. And this is why people aren't seeing the statistics, because their minds can't engage that data, because in a, it's in a state of, I am under threat, I am under threat. Because yeah, you so don't have to think deep. You, you just have to look at the statistics of what's going on and um, yes. you put two and two together. Um, and you don't have to dig well, very deep. Exactly. Um, yeah, but you do, you do need a certain amount of uh, prefrontal cortex, um, rational thinking. thinking yeah. and I'm not saying people aren't rational thinking. I'm just saying the mainstream media is pumping out this fear all the time. Most definitely. So people are put in that state. Now, I, um, I turned on the TV. I don't watch it. I try and avoid it. And I just caught the tail end of um, a nightly show, meant to be progressive. And they had a, some expert on. I don't know who she was or what she was, but some medical person. And one of the reporters or one of the um, people on the panel said, well, if we get, you know, cold symptoms or a sore throat, what do we do? And she said, you, if you've got a sore throat more than an hour, you go and get tested. Well, and then hour, everyone's wow. going, oh, at home, you know, oh, my God. Like, of course people are going to get very scared when they hear that. And I'm thinking, why would you run and get tested? It's not like they're going to hand you a hydroxychloroquine, and that's a whole different story we probably shouldn't discuss. It's not like there's a cure. <laughs> that is a different discussion, but it really, it's not like, okay, you've got this, take this, you'll be fine. It's the only thing is to get increased numbers and further isolate and lock people down. That, that's it. So it, I think just creating that constant panic is... Um, well, it's inaccurate and it's unconscionable, in my opinion. No matter what's going out there, adding a heavy dose of fear on top of it 
Yeah. I think and it's necessary. We're already in lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> like and part of those chemicals that come out in um, response to that fear, like you said, like the fear yes. of light, um, people get addicted to those opioids that come out also. So um, if you have it day after day and you're looking at yes. the news day after day, you're going to become addicted, unfortunately, and fall into Absolutely. that drama. Absolutely. Yeah, sequence. So what happens is people think they, it, this is all subconscious, as you know, yeah. you're not thinking that with the conscious mind, but subconsciously, it's if I stay in this heightened fear state yeah. and do what I can to protect me, I'll be safe. So subconsciously, people don't want the fear to, to drop because they're now attaching their survival with that heightened fear state. And at a level that's, that's a, at least subconsciously, that is an, an addiction. And it is subconscious, it is. like you said. But they do look for, um, they don't take accountability and they point the finger of who may be responsible for this rather than taking their own accountability. Well, but, well totally. Yeah. It, totally. And that's largely what my book about, you know, good healthy care is looking from, working from the inside out more so and the outside in. And this is just what can get me and what can I do to... Um, Get that and, and this is why there's such a war amongst masks and not masks and you know it's mandated here so i can't come on it on that no no but we know and I, I believe most people really think they are doing the right thing and they're innocently going about and thinking oh, most this definitely. is fine yeah yeah so there's no doubt about that because that's what they've been fed interestingly the um i was just reading a world health organization report june this year uh gave many compelling reasons while why mandated mass of the general community is not good. And, and that's obviously been flipped around, but that's another argument. So the whole mass thing is that when we're in that survival mode, our, our, our brains become, we default to our subconscious mind. Our subconscious mind is about 95% compared to our conscious mind, 5%. So we default to that. And the subconscious mind can be very um, simplistic and also infantile. So what happens is people have attached survival to this person is or isn't wearing a mask, okay? And it's not a conscious thing. I'm not blaming it. This no, is just how, how no. the brain works and because of what we're fed. Um, basically, this is why this thinking. So this is why some people are so aggressive to people who are not wearing masks because they literally think, mask on, I'm safe. Mask off, you are a direct threat to yeah. my life. It's, it's a real polarisation, yeah. It's, a, it's primal as that. And... You know, they're not doing it consciously. They're not bad people. And most people are, are completely polite. But there are some who are extremely aggressive about this. And it's like the aggressive dog, you know, the dog that snarls and <laughs> bears its teeth. and but, but underlying that, aggression is actually fear. Mm. And, and very often it's been um, uh, abused or wounded. So we're all reacting differently because of our histories to this situation. Yeah. But that's why that aggressive reaction is mass means you have your mask means I'm safe. You not have mask means I'm not safe. And I don't believe it works that way at all. You know, we're not looking at the terrain. We're not looking at our internal milieu. We're not taking responsibility for what can I do to make myself safer, less susceptible beyond just barrier methods. And, okay, so what know. can we do now to empower people since we're on this um, subject? Okay. Well, firstly, um, regarding the fear... We can't just get rid of it, you know, like that. It doesn't happen that way. Okay? Actually, they say those chemicals can last up to one month, like 30 days um, in your body yes. um, once yes. you set them in yes. the gear. So when we're in the grip of strong fear, it's not like, oh, we'll just turn it off. It's not that simple. 
And in fact, if people tried, that would actually be concerning because they'll be suppressing them. And that's uh, far more harmful to the body. And I talk a lot about that in my book. So it's not about spitting the dummy. It's just about getting in, looking, having a balanced approach, getting in inf information that's soothing. D turn off the nightly news for a start because yeah, that's just I agree. up. I agree. Yeah. Constant fear. Okay. And it, you know, as I said, no matter what's going on, adding a heavy dose of fear does, doesn't help. You know, as I was saying before, a lot of things we would normally do, like going for a walk in nature, I'm talking about the Melbourne experience, um, a lot of that's very limited now. But if you can get into nature, get into nature, okay? Na nature's truth, in my opinion. If you've got a tree in your backyard, it might mean you have to sit on your patch of grass in the backyard. Get outside, get into nature, turn the TV off, read go some, get some oxytocin, go and hug it. <laughs> Seriously, yes. Yeah, seriously. Like, when you hug, you, 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 your body does make some chemicals of oxytocin. Yes. The, the, the other thing about fear is that we've all got a backlog of fear from, well, our whole lives, from day dot, but also ancestrally. So and this oh, is yeah, why a lot of people react differently. Because if they had had an ancestor who died in the plague, we, we're inheriting that reaction yeah. in our yeah. genes. So that's yeah. why some people are reacting in that state. Yeah. I'm not blaming people for this. this is just how the mind works in my understanding. So, you know, if ancestors did die from the plague or whatever, they're more likely to be reactive to what's going on. But it's also a wonderful opportunity to integrate those fears. It's not about eliminating them. No. That's not the answer. That's suppression. That's worse for our bodies. Or distracting ourselves, well, to some extent, but not, not as a complete solution. So it's actually an opportunity to sit with the fears in a mindful way and that integrates them. Now, that does take a little bit of training. I'm not saying that everyone has that capacity or, or the knowledge to do that, but it's what I'm doing. It's like, okay, what fear is this bringing up? Because I, I, I also have a lot of fear, but it's not of the virus. <laughs> it's of other, other things. And it's an opportunity to sit with the fears and integrate them in a mindful way, because then we're having more control over the emotions rather than they are controlling us. So it's actually a brilliant opportunity to, to do that. And just doing things that are healthy and soothing, you know, inspiring literature. Humanity's been through a lot, you know, through millennia. We, we're, we're tough. We're resilient. Well, most definitely. We, yeah. And, you know, we Very grow through these experiences. I think it's good, you know, to remind ourselves there's a bigger picture. And no matter how dire circumstances are, and I'm not underestimating that, there's an opportunity for growth and learning individually and collectively. And yeah. I think it's good to look at what humanity has been through, like, you know, books like uh, Viktor Frankl's um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He oh, was definitely. a hot yeah. survivor and, and he found meaning in, in his experience right. and that totally yeah. changed. If we're totally in victim mode, unfortunately that's not going to produce a healthy outcome, body or mind. But we're, if we're in how can I cope with this at another level? What am I learning? How am I growing through this experience? And I think we need to hear more about that because I'm concerned how humanity has become. We've become, generally speaking, very restricted, constricted, fear-based, separated, suspicious of each other. And to me, that's, that is much, much more concerning than any virus in, in how this is 
you know, played out in our communities and it breaks my heart. It really does. That people are fighting against each other and, and we're suspicious of each other. You walk down the road, you've got people literally jumping out of the way as though a virus is going to jump from you to them and it's a total misconception. I don't believe it works like that. Um, we know people are more susceptible, for sure, and that should be respected. I'm not saying people don't do what they need to reasonably do to protect themselves, but it's only part of the picture. We need to look more broadly. So, so uh, this interests me why people are more susceptible to certain viruses as well. Well, and I cannot pretend to have the full answer to that, but we know from a, a body physical level, okay, and that's just one level, um, certainly people, we know that the people who have um, died, generally speaking, and, and there will always be exceptions, um, have significant, a lot of them have significant comorbidities that make them more susceptible, um, or they're quite elderly. Now, I'm not at all saying those people don't matter by that statement, because I know oh, a lot of people... definitely not. No, everyone that. matters. Everyone does. Everyone matters. But there is a certain reality that is, if there is an sta advanced state of senescence, our immune systems are just not what they used to be, and we are more vulnerable. That's just how it is. My father died from the flu a few years ago. No headlines about that. And, and that went through his... He was in a, um, a care place, and it went through the whole institution. So it was a very similar picture to now, but we just didn't hear about it because flu doesn't have the same sort of marketing manager as um, COVID. Um, you know, we're not hearing it. Oh, we're they're not in told the same family. Yeah. Yes. So this this happens. And do people die of or do they die with? This is the other thing. Interesting. Is that when our immune systems are depleted, we are more likely to it's it's a misconception, but catch something. But is that the cause of death or is that a contributing factor or is it just a um another factor that that is there? And and the other thing is that with respiratory illnesses, it's, it's not usually just one microbe. It's usually a combination that, that will infect us, okay, if people are, are unwell. And we have such a myopic obsession with this virus. We're not looking at other things. And I would love yeah. to see a study yeah. of all these yeah. people being, treated, yeah. being tested for influenza A at the same time. You know, are, are they having other infections as well? Now, I just want to emphasise, I'm not saying people don't do what they need to do to protect themselves. That's not the argument. Of course they should. I'm just saying there are other, we need to uh, look more broadly at just looking at barrier methods. And, and why not? Why not? And there's, um, a, yeah. We need to look at environmental causes as well. I mean, um, a lot of the research that I did was um, shown that there's high areas of you know, convergence where there's um, a lot of industrial products, high transport, agricultural, you know, usage of um, glyphosate on the food or um, within the soils coupled with, um, you know, particulate matter or basically um, pollution that's in the air that uh, the uh, particulate matter was able to bond with the virus um, and create, you know, those, those clumping matters, which um, once it's into the respiratory system caused a hypoxic state. So there's a lot that we should be looking at, yeah, and, and not be telescopic. There's a lot that we need to actually um, look Absolutely. at. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's never one thing. No. Never one thing. That, that's, it's, it's always a combination of things. It's complex. 
and of course environmental factors and I think some places in the world maybe including Italy North Italy where they had large numbers there were many other factors and, and, there were you know, there were even in New and, York City yeah New York City as yeah. well and, and there's other factors too that we we can't mention um, probably that might make one more susceptibility to this yeah most definitely yeah yeah. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. It's never one thing, and we're so focused on this virus, we're forgetting the bigger picture. Why not look at the bigger picture? Right. The other thing is, it, you know, the trend I'm seeing is that we've become we're becoming suspicious of nature's of nature. We're not learning to trust our own bodies. In this, it's what can get me from the outside. What can get me from the outside? Yeah, the boogeyman on the external side. Yeah, so we've been programmed yeah. or indoctrinated lately to envisage that we do have an external boogeyman. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing is, if I, you might have had a question. Do you mind if I proceed? No. This whole concept that we can totally by material means eliminate all risk in life is uh, intriguing. It's like people are trying to eliminate all risk in life. We, we will have another epidemic. We'll have another, you know, there's always been bugs. There always will be bugs. And most of us harmonise very well, as you said, with that. There will be some who are susceptible who, who won't. But the idea is, we, the more contracted and protected and, and shielded we become, then, you know, that ensures our safety. But there's another argument here in that life is risky and people die. This virus didn't create death. It's always been there. It always will be. But I think because of this mass fear propagation, people are confronted with their own mortality face-to-face. Yeah, face. yeah. And even that's a lot of polarisation. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Even though the figures are actually very small, but people are confronted with their mortality and they're rejecting it. It's like, oh, okay. Now, there is a reality. People die, and I'm not trying to say that flippantly, but I'm not, I didn't create death. The virus didn't create death. That is a reality. Of course, I promote absolutely as long, healthy, enjoyable, and productive life as we can have for everyone. So I'm not saying we don't do what we can for that. Well, but there's a certain reality we're ignoring here. And the fact is, when we integrate our fear of death, and this is an opportunity to do that, we more embrace life. And likely we're going to have a healthier, um, happier, long life if we integrate it. So we integrate our fear of death, we embrace life. But I'm saying the opposite here is that people are totally um, manipulated by the fear of death. So they think, oh, I just have to have a very unnatural, shielded, protected life to live. And, and what I'm seeing is that there's two kind of schools of people. There's a spectrum. And there's many in between. But at one end, it's survival at any cost. I will do anything. I will hand over any freedom. I will do anything. I will eliminate my normal life so that I survive. And I'm not arguing against this. We all have a primal survival. Yeah, I think instinct. it's a primal survival mode that we all have, yeah. 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 At the other end of the spectrum is, well, quality of life is important to me. And freedom is important to me. 
and I'm prepared to take the risk. And anyone else can do whatever they want, whatever they're comfortable with to protect them. But I don't necessarily want to do that because life is risky and I'm going to take the risk. Now, that's very politically incorrect to say that. And, um, you know, there, there might be a backlash, but it, it, but it is a reality. And these are actually value systems, survival at any cost or freedom, quality of life, you know, allow myself to take risks. But they're value systems. Yeah. So now, they're completely overshadowed by one, one end of the value system and the other end doesn't get a look in, but they're value systems. And who's to say one is right over the other? So people's, because it's so politically incorrect to mention these things and to even talk about death, I know it's delicate. It's like, well, if people say, I actually, I value freedom. I actually value freedom and that's okay. I'm allowed to value freedom. You know, it's, it's, it's like, oh, no, you can't. We just have to stay in this mode where we're totally protected. Um, Well, thank you. It's so risky and always will be. You know, as I said, um, what, 1,200 to 1,500 motor car accidents a, a year. And, and do people die of something or, or with something? Like we, we attribute a cause to death. Is it a cause or is it a circumstance? There, there is a difference in that understanding. Yeah, you've been absolutely a wealth of um, information. Thank you. And you've also um, provided us such a different perspective on what's going on at the moment with the current situation. And, um, you know, like you said, um, there, there is a particular narrative at the moment um, promoted by the, the journalists, I guess. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and so it leaves people in, in a particular state. So it's causing a lot of uh, divisiveness and uh, polarisation. So... Um, hopefully through understanding and education that that can change basically with what's going on with yeah. the current climate. I mean, um, you know, certain ministers only have uh, certain information given to them from the experts. So they just uh, make decisions based on that. On, on information. Well, who, knows what, who knows what's going on there? I'm just very intrigued. It's not making any sense who, who, who are actually suggesting these policies that, you know, for um, 136 deaths and not to disrespect those people. But again, compared to flu, it's a lot less. We're pretty much turning our lives upside down and shutting down our lives. We have a curfew here. <laughs> and uh, my question is, what is next? It's not going to stop here. And, um, yeah, don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, It'd be very interesting to see what they do with the testing during lockdown. It'll be interesting to see whether they say, well, lockdown has worked, we have less figures, or it, it hasn't worked. We have to apply strict, I don't know how they can, stricter um, sanctions. It'd be quite interesting to see how that plays out. Um, Kat, do I have time to mention just one other thing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it, it's the whole concept of a case. Because what we're hearing is, oh, so many cases, cases, cases. And if you, you test 50,000 people in a day, you're likely to get some positive test results, oh, even though we know the test is not perfect and, and possibly is cross-reacting with other um, genetic material. So when I went to medical school and during my um, work, a case was someone with a disease. 
not a positive test result. And most of those people with positive test results are perfectly well and, and, and will remain so. But if they call in positive test results, cases, a lot of people are just assuming a case means someone who's seriously unwell or is in hospital or dying. Yeah. yeah. So we need to know, we need to put cases, cases, quote, in context. And if they're quoting numbers, we need to know how many positive test results there are per people tested. Like you can't just give an isolated number. So if the case, cases, quote, unquote, go down, we need to know, well, how many people are tested? How many people have comorbidities? How many people, et cetera, et cetera. So just quoting a case is, is, is inaccurate. Gives a very misleading picture as to what's going on. Yeah, there's lots of bits of misinformation out there. So it, it's really hard to put uh, pieces of the puzzle together at the moment. It really is for many people. Yeah. Yeah. And as I said, you know, my concern is what we've become as a, a species. This is worldwide. We, we, need to, we need to bond together somehow to get through this. And I'm sadly not seeing that, and that, that alarms me more than anything. We're societal beings, we're communal beings, always have been. We need to continue to yeah, be so. Definitely. And for a start, we could all paint uh, happy smiles on our masks as well. So I, I think that will have <laughs> a positive effect on, on anyone that you come in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, smiles, but we could paint them on our masks. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, it's been great, and as always, um, having um, a chat with you. Fantastic. Uh, now, your book, your book that, um, can you find that in stores? Where can people find you if they need to um, have a chat with you or? Um, your book, The Wounding of Healthcare from Fragmentation. Well, just just usual, usual outlets. Just, you know, I think um, Booktopia, etc. I'm not very good at marketing to my books. So I don't even know. But I'm sure if you Googled the book, people could, could buy it on, on, online mainly. And people can find you on Facebook or a website. What can they find you under? Well, I have a website, um, www.drkatherinefines.com. And I've written some articles on this. And, you know, I do need to reinstate my, I'm not representing the medical profession at all. In my views, I'm representing a person who happens to have worked in the medical profession for 40 years, but my interests in my body medicine are, you know, very different to, to mainstream. So, and I do advise people go to their own healthcare practitioners if they want specific health advice. This is a general discussion. It's not to give specific advice, but I think it's good to have some query and have some debate yeah, um, and just see that there are two sides to the argument rather than this myopic um, focused on one side of the equation. Fantastic. It's been great having you on the show, Catherine. So um, hopefully we can get you on again soon. Sure. Okay. okay. Thanks a lot. Okay. okay. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. You're listening to The Wellness Couch, and that was Dr. Catherine Fiennes, where science meets ancient wisdom, and we're your host, uh, Brett and Katerina Morrison. We'll jo- hope you'll join us for another session of The Wellness Couch live radio next Thursday. See you then. Bye. <laughs>